Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Battleground. This is a podcast where Battle and Friends talk all things wrestling and laugh with comedians that are way funnier than him. And you never know who's going to stop by. Here is your host, Battle. All right, so uh, we're back. It's uh, a new episode Friday. Here we are. It's the Battleground Podcast. My name is Battle. My name is Eli. We talk wrestling every week. That is why it's called Battleground Podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know where I was going with that. Uh, but today's show is going to be really, really good because, well, you've seen uh, on Vice the dark side of the ring stories. Well, we have a guy that's been a part of this. Dutch freaking Mantel is on the show. Yeah, this is crazy. Just you know, I know you you watched him growing up. I watched him growing up in West Tennessee and. Yeah, this is this is going to be a wild one, I'm sure. And it's going to be super, super great stuff because I'm just kind of looking at the questions that we have for him. And, of course, we're going to talk about Dark Side of the Ring, but we want to know more about his career because Dutch Mantel is known for his career, not just Dark Side of the Ring. Yeah. I mean, he's had two stints with WWE. He was in WCW, uh, Memphis Wrestling. He's wrestled all over the world. I mean... And it's it's I'm just looking forward to this interview. And of course, we also real quick got to jump into it because it's going to be a very long interview with Dutch Mantel. But we do need to jump into this week's Battleground Weekly Challenge. And I got to come up with some kind of cool little thing that plays when we talk about it. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. But uh, this week we're putting up Ricky the Dragon Steamboat versus Daniel Bryan, and you can voice your opinion on our instagram handle it is at battleground podcasts and uh if i'm picking this match real quick i'm going hands down steamboat yeah it's i think this one was a good choice because i think they're both similar wrestlers in the sense that they're both um what is it clinics clinic clinicians take something they put on clinics yes they put on clinics i think that's the the grand scheme of it um you know, I think they both just dissect their matches on a different level than a lot of the other guys. Um, I probably would give it to Steamboat just because of probably his cardio. You know, he's a little bit better shape, but I don't know, man. That one would be a, a pretty pretty good one to check out. Yes, so go voice your opinion. Follow the Battleground Podcast. Battleground Podcast is our Instagram handle. But uh, without further ado, let's just uh, go ahead and jump right into it. Here is our interview with Dutch Mantel. Let's get ready to rumble. I'd be lying right now if I wasn't, like, giddy because of who we have on the phone today. Yeah. I I believe this is wrestling royalty. Dutch Mantel is on the phone with us. How are you doing, sir? Well, I love that introduction. Wrestling royalty. I'll, I'll take it, but I'm, I'm doing well. How are you guys? We doing are well. great. Uh, so let's let's just kind of jump right into this. Uh, let's go back to the very beginning. How did you get your start into wrestling? We got time. Oh, we got long, time. Long story. I'll I'll just give you the highlights. Is uh, I started. 
probably a lot earlier than a lot of people that are listening to this. I started before they were probably born. I started in, uh, after I came out of the Army, I got drafted, went to Vietnam. They tried to kill me there for 11 months and 29 days. Then I got out, and <clears throat> I had a friend in Atlanta, and he weighed 400 pounds. He's about 6'7", and he was wrestling there, and he asked me, and I had done some independent shows with him, and he asked me, he said, hey, you want to you wanna come work here? And I thought, well, I'd like to, but I think I need more experience. He said, no, don't worry about it. I came over there and talked to the guy, and the guy's name was, and nobody will remember him. But if you look him up, you can find him. Tommy Nesto, one of the world-famous assassins, that tag team. And he was the the booker and the, and the leader of the group, and I went to learn to give me a job. So I started I started working, and I forgot. I think I started making like $400 a week. Three hundred to four hundred dollars a week, and you got to put that in in context. The minimum wage then was like two sixty. Yeah, that's a lot of money. So, so you you figure I'm making four hundred dollars a week to drive up and down the road and and do something that I love doing. I was the happiest guy in the world, and that's that's how I got started in the business, and that's how I started learning the history of the business. Guys, today, a lot of them and and WWE, they don't know the history of the business. They've never studied it. All they know is the history of the WWE, which is good to know, but they don't know the guys that preceded them and what went on and all the stories, and that's that's what they're missing. Now, I started in WWE, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit later, but I started in February 2013, and when I walked in that dressing room right here in Nashville on that Monday night in February, I think it was February 13th, I think, I thought they were going to offer that they had called earlier and wanted to know would I come and meet them. And I said, yeah, sure. I'll meet you. So, and I had a lot going on in my life then. And it was, it was really a dark time and I won't get into that, but I walked in and I thought I wanted triple H wanted to talk to me about just going to NXT in Orlando or Tampa, whenever it was, wherever it was then, but he didn't, he's looking for a manager for Jack Swagger. And I said, well, yeah, I can do that, because he needed a mouthpiece for him. I said, yeah, I can do that. And he says, we're looking for an older guy that's kind of, you know, kind of jaded on the American experience, and he's thought the country's gone downhill, and he wants to he wants to speak up. He wants his voice heard. And he says, and I walked in at 3.30, and he wanted me to do an uh, audition tape. So I did one. I went in the back, and I had 10 minutes to prepare for this. So I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to do? You remember the you remember the movie Grand Torino? Oh yeah, great movie. Well, I started channeling Clint Eastwood, so I went in there, did the interview. I said, when I walk down my streets, I see people that don't talk like me, they don't look like me, they don't eat the same food as me. What, what happened to my country? What happened to my America? So I met him at 3.30. I did the interview at 5.30. Vince saw it at 5. Uh, uh, he it went in to uh, talk to Triple H at 4.30. Vince saw it at 5.30. I was hired at 6.30, and I was live on Raw that night at 7.30. Jeez. <laughs> so, and even a couple of guys called me. They said, wow, how long have y'all been working on your appearance? I said, probably an hour, maybe. <laughs> Because yeah. they didn't have it. They wanted to hire me, but they wanted to see before they did it. They wanted to see if I could do what they wanted me to do. So I went in there and I cut that promo. And Vince, he loved it. So I got hired and 
I went to work, and they just wanted me for TV. And I says, hey, man, why don't you put me on the road? And they said, you want to go on the road? I said, yeah, I'll go on the road, because that, that'd be more money. Right. I said, yeah, so I went on the road and went right to WrestleMania 29 from there. That was like, what, six, seven weeks later. Now, you tell me a guy walks in off the street, and they hire him, and I was an older guy then. I'm 69 years old right now, so they hired me when I was 64. Then I went on the road, and then I was in I was in Europe six, eight weeks later. Wow. Weird story, huh? It's yeah. a crazy story. And sometimes when I tell people, they say, how did you do this? How did you go all these places? And it is really amazing to me because I came from a little town in South Carolina that probably had 1,500 people in it. Man. And it was a time that the textile mills, cotton mills, there was no, they couldn't make any money there. And if you'd have told me, and my mother died when I was 12, so basically I raised myself. But if you'd told me when I was 15, 16 years old, I would go to all these places and do all these things and meet all these people, I, I, I would have thought you were completely crazy. But the wrestling business, and that's why I love it so much, the wrestling business uh, gave me the opportunity to travel the world and see what was out there. And it's a big world, and people are the same all over. And that's what I found out about wrestling fans. Wrestling fans, as long as they're watching wrestling, they're all the same. That's true. How you separate them is by politics and religion. But wrestling doesn't do that. So they can all come together and, and enjoy the same thing. And I've had a lot of people come up to me, and they said, Dutch, I just want to thank you because he said, I, my father hated me, and I didn't get along with him, not hated him, but he said, we didn't get along. The only time we ever shared was sitting around a TV watching you and the other wrestlers. That was our share time. He said, beyond that, we had nothing in common. So, and wrestling does bring people together, and I'm, I'm if you go to a wrestling convention, you, you will see people, it's like going, it's a comic con is what it is. Yeah, you don't see people arguing and fighting. They're enjoying going and seeing everybody and enjoying themselves. This is a great experience, right? Well, speaking of, so that's how that's how I started. I got off topic, but you'll find out that I get off topic a lot. So when no, I get that's talking, okay. no, we appreciate it. Um, <laughs> so you know, you you mentioned you traveled the world, and um, you know, one one place that you spent a lot of time was Puerto Rico, and I know there was some very dark times there, and there were some positive times. One one <laughs> story we want to kind of highlight that was kind of positive. This was crazy to me; I, I didn't realize this, but um, in 1979, you and Cowboy Frankie Lane, y'all sold out the 16,000 so seat guys, arena. So you guys, so you guys have done some research. We've done some research. Yeah. Hey, we um, told you we're big wrestling yeah. fans. Yeah. Um, okay. But but you guys sold out that arena for nine weeks straight. I mean, like, what yeah. what was the gimmick for that, or what was the idea for that, and like, what was the atmosphere in that arena for nine weeks straight? Dangerous, very dangerous. Yeah, I went to Puerto Rico in this, uh, January the sixth, nineteen seventy nine, and it was like a Wednesday night show. And I went, and they said, "Oh, we're going to sell out." I'm thinking. Why the hell? I mean, January the 6th, Wednesday night, the middle of the week. I, I didn't get it. Nobody ever took time to tell me it's their second Christmas. Oh, it's wow. Three Kings Day, so it's a, it's a holiday. So everybody's off work. And I walked into that 
Coliseum, the Roberto Clemente, and yeah, they sold it out. It's a big holiday. They had a big card. And uh, after the owner of the company saw me and Frankie in the ring, he called us in there and he said, hey, we're going to go with you guys, and can you come into the office Tuesday? So I said, okay. We came in there, and Frankie, he's he's passed on, you know, rest in peace. But he told me, and he had a funny way of talking. He went, Dutch, you know, they want to. They won't ask us what we want to do. And I never thought about it. So we came in, and I, and I had this idea. Why don't we do the 1000 Silver Dollar Challenge match? Because they didn't really have silver dollars in Puerto Rico. So that means any team that we couldn't beat in 10 minutes, they'd win the $1,000. So that was, our, that was our spiel there. And I was the only bad guy who ever went to Puerto Rico and actively. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What if you could have a career? where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Trash Talk the Island. I mean, I talked, oh, my God. And I said, I refuse to speak Spanish, although I do. I refuse to speak it because I consider it a primitive language. Oh, Oh my God. You thought I'd spit on their mother. And then I called the women something like, I don't know, loose and like unpaid prostitutes. Not those words. (laughs) You were like throwing straight daggers at them. And I called the men like more effeminate than they need to be. And I refused to drink their coffee because it was trash. I mean, I, you know, people hated me. And that's how I learned all the bad words in Spanish. Like, hijo de, I won't say the word, if I'm speaking <laughs> Spanish up there. Or, chinga to my, you know. I, I, I didn't, those were, they were all bad words. And I could walk out on the street, and I couldn't take, like, five steps. People cussed me. And looking at me. And I had to watch them because they would pick up a rock and knock the hell out of me. And it was very dangerous going into that stadium. Well, it was was a whole dangerous island because people just didn't like me. And going into that stadium, they would would throw rocks and they would throw, you know, they would take Coke cups and pack them with ice. And they played baseball year-round, so they all got these strong, accurate arms. They would just knock the crap out of you. And the security was kind of... They would they'd help you a little bit, but they couldn't stop everything. That's when I first started wearing a poncho and a big hat. <laughs> I would turn my hat down toward the crowd, let the poncho drop, and it caught a lot of stuff. That's when I first, you know, I didn't wear that for appearance. I wore it for protection. So we went nine weeks in a row outside, set a record. They've never, uh, they've never done it since. And the and it was. It, we did two big stadiums, Bayamon and one in Beethorn, which is about, I don't know, 20 miles apart, I guess. But both of them seated about fifteen or 16,000 people. But we would have more than that. 
the thing about Puerto Rico, you'd be sitting in the dugout and the place is sold out, and all of a sudden you see a commotion out there in right field or center field, and all the kids waiting outside, they'd all come over that wall. Then they'd just start running toward the stands, and you know the security couldn't catch them. So they'd go up in the stands. So I think a lot of times uh, we, we probably had close to 20,000 people in that arena. Very dangerous. And, and when the matches were over, forget leaving. You couldn't leave because they waited for you. And and the strange thing about Puerto Rico is they would put the main event on fourth. Huh. And I thought that was the stupidest thing in the world. Stupid. I said, why in the hell? And I'm thinking, well, what a bunch of backward promoters putting your main event on fourth. That's crazy. Well, then I found out why they did. They put the main event on fourth. And I'm glad they put us on fourth because they drink like fish down there. I mean, you had to drink and rum and beer. If we'd have waited to go on to the main event, they'd have been so drunk, they'd have stormed the ring. Wow. So I learned that about my second night there. And I remember one night, we had gone on early, but Abdullah the Butcher was the last match. They had actively came out of the stands and circled the infield. And it looked like a they were throwing so many. They were hitting him, too, hitting him in the head and the back. And he, all he could do was put his hands down. I say it looked like a biblical stoning is what it looked like. And it's a wonder he got back. So a very, a very dangerous time there. And, and Puerto Rico was, you know, a, a rough environment to begin with. Man, that is that is a crazy story. Uh, our guest right now, Dutch Mantel, is on the phone with us. Uh, you know, for people of a certain age, well, you're most associated with Memphis wrestling in the 70s and 80s, and you had feuds with everyone from Law or Bill Dundee, Eddie Gilbert, Buddy Landell, and among others. What was Memphis like in those days, and who was your favorite feud? Uh, well, I had several. Actually, the one, the two I remember the most, uh, the feud with Lawler. That was that was very good and very well done. And the thing about the feud with Lawler is because I was never really see Lawler was the fans were used to seeing Lawler wrestle, you know, totally 100 percent bad guys. But with me, I was kind of a good guy wrestling Lawler. So we we literally split the crowd. Mm. They were about half for me and half for him. And Lawler was very good, and we had some great matches, do some great houses, and that was one of my, uh, my big memories of Memphis. Another one was Randy Savage when he first got to Memphis and took off as the macho man. The thing about Randy Savage, I knew him a long, long time before he ever got to Memphis. I met him when I first started wrestling, and he was he was still playing minor league baseball at the time. He was wrestling in the winter and playing minor league baseball, you know, in season in in the summer. And first time I saw him, he was Spider Man. He had a mask on, weighed about 160 pounds. And he got on the weights and got on the juice a little bit and got up to about 220, 230, and and you saw how his career went when he got when when Vince found him. And Vince found him basically in Memphis anyway. Because Memphis has produced a lot, a lot of talent. I think they produced more talent than any of the territory that actually went to WWE or WWF in those days. You know, anybody like Rick Rude came through there and King Kong Bundy came through there and, you know, the Godfather came through there and uh, the Undertaker came through there and Kane came through there and Stone Cold Steve Austin. So they all came through Memphis to kind of learn this business. And Vince, I think, or WWE, not Vince, but WWE, I think they made a mistake when they ran all these little satellite 
companies out of business, these, I call them mom and pops, because that killed his developmental system. So he was paid nothing for the developmental system before. Now he had to create his own, and that's what he's created in, in, in Florida, in Orlando, or wherever it is, when he created NXT. But he's making billions of dollars, and so who can who can fault success? Yeah. Well, and I think it's what you said before we got on the air. You know, I, I think a lot of people miss Memphis wrestling, not only, you know, as a location, but also that style and that, that type of storytelling. And, um, and you know, I, I don't think people really realize, like, how hot that was, you know, the, the Monday nights at the Mid-South Coliseum and uh, Saturday mornings TV. I mean, it was... It was some of the most popular wrestling in North America, I would say. Well, it, cre- it created record ratings too. Yeah, ratings it really did. In those days, that, in, in those days, cable was in its in its early days. So regional, I mean, uh, uh, local TV ruled all over the place. Memphis sometimes would turn a twenty-two rating. Yeah. And sometimes like a seventy percent share. Which and is... you, I always got confused on that, but. 22% of the total audience were watching wrestling. That's insane. I mean, if you had a million people watching, watching, uh, watching uh, that's available, 70% of them, that's what the 70 mean, 70% of them that are watching TV at that time are watching the show. See, wrestlers in Memphis, they were the best known. They, they were known more than the governor or the mayor. Everybody knew the wrestlers. Everybody. Oh, easy. I mean, I know people tell me they set their watch about when wrestling came on. Mm-hmm. And, and in the same way in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico sometimes would turn a 22 or a 23 rating. That's, that's unbelievable. And, but those were back, they won't do that now because, first of all, they got too much competition on TV. <clears throat> I mean, you couldn't even start a local promotion now and expect to do anything because, first of all, it's cost prohibitive. You couldn't afford it. And second of all, you know, once you've seen the big lights of Broadway, you know, you, you just can't go back to a little local play because you're not going to draw. So right. that's the, that's the business of wrestling. I've enjoyed the hell out of it. Hey, let me, let me get this in. I'm going to do an appearance and I don't do a lot on June the second here in Nashville at the Springwater bar. You know, we're going to talk in just a minute about dark side of the ring. But when I did my interview for dark side of the ring, that's actually where I went to this bar called, uh, Springwater Bar. It's the oldest bar in Tennessee. It's right there in Centennial Park. And I don't know exactly the address, but you can go to my website. It's called DirtyDutchMantel.com or follow me on Twitter. You know, you, you can get all that information. But um, it, but it has limited seating, and if they want, and I do like a little comedy show too. Very funny, very humorous, and uh, you'll come in and you'll leave laughing, and you'll, you'll have a great night there. It's June the 2nd. starts at 7 o'clock, 7 p.m., I do a meet and greet at 6.15, and uh, I enjoy doing these because the fans enjoy it. And uh, I invite everybody to come join me June 2nd, Springwater Bar, uh, in Nashville Centennial Park. And you're invited too, by the way. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely blast that on our socials because that sounds like an awesome event. Now, do I get to bring my cowboy hat and have you re-sign it that you signed for me when I was a kid? Well, Well, you told me that. (laughs) <laughs> when was that, in Nashville? It was in Nashville. It was at the historic fairgrounds. And I want to believe... Which is being torn down, you know. Yeah, and it's it's very sad. We actually had uh, Frank Griffin, who is the owner of Overdrive, 
in a couple of weeks ago, and he's doing the last show at the fairgrounds with Tommy Dreamer. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about that well, and so much history at that fairgrounds. A lot of history in that building. A lot of history. You know, I used to... It, it's funny about Memphis wrestling. We used to fall out every Monday night in Memphis, 7,000, 8,000, 10,000 people on a regular basis. Hey, when it got down to 5,000 people, they wanted to fire everybody. You know, 5,000 people in the Mid-South Coliseum doesn't look very crowded. But you put 5,000 people in an arena that holds 5,000 people, you know, it's sold out. But Memphis was in Nashville and Louisville, Kentucky, and Evansville, Indiana, and Lexington, Kentucky. When we would go to some of those towns, you know, Lexington, Kentucky, Rupp Arena hosts 20,000. Now, we wouldn't sell it out. They would curtain half of it off. But they'd be eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 people there in Lexington, Kentucky. It's a basketball town. But I don't care what a town is. If the wrestling is good, the people are going to be there. Oh, most definitely. And it's like here in Nashville. It's like last weekend in Portland, they packed out the Portland High School gym for uh, uh, a wrestling event. And, you know, as long as well, you've this got... Is, this, this is how they're doing that. And I've thought about this. I said, wait a minute. You used to run shows. It might draw. I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's how you promote the event. But now with social media, you know, it, it's there. If you just get people to follow you, at least they will know an event is in town. And that's how they're doing it now. That's how all of these independent wrestlers are getting noticed by WWE is because of social media. So if somebody is sitting in WWE and they're reading this guy who wants to come and he sends a letter or a call and they tell him to look him up, well, now it's right there. And they can... They can look and see what this guy looks like, how he talks, how he presents himself, how he, how, he, how he performs in the ring. And that's how those guys are doing it. More power to them. I wish I'd had it when I started alone. Yeah, no joke. Um, I want to touch on, you, you mentioned earlier about... It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You know how, how difficult it would be to start up something nowadays um you were actually a part of a startup for lack of a better word uh smoky mountain wrestling with jim Cornette. um you know that's kind of like memphis the the roster you know the amount of people that came through there was just unbelievable chris jericho lance storm bob holly you know Dilo brown kane was there for a little bit what was it like working with that organization and also kind of seeing it from the ground floor um, and just being associated with who ended up being like the futures of the business. Well, I started with, you know, I started with, with Smoky Mountain, not as a wrestler, but as an announcer. And Bob Cottle and I announced, I don't know, I, I did two years of announcing. And that's when I entered. It's probably, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say the years is 92, 1992, and 1993. I did all their TVs. Bob Cottle and I, uh, very well, well done show. Very well done. Easy to follow. Told some great stories and, uh, Cornette knew what he was doing. 
Now, the thing about Cornell, when I went out there to announce, somebody said, well, what, what, what would he tell you what to say? I said, Jim never talked to me, really. I mean, Jimmy managed me when he first got in. I was the first guy Jim Cornette managed. I'm not the first person, but I was the first male. You know who the first person he he, he managed? Nope. Uh, uh, meh, I'm sorry. Time's up. Sherry Martell. Oh, then I know that. That's a good trivia. That's a good trivia question. And I was a second. I was a second person, but the first guy. But uh, Jimmy had uh, had an investor, and uh, I can't remember his name now. Rick. It was Rick Rubin, right? The the producer. Rick Rubin. Yeah. But he never would tell anybody who the investor was. I knew it was, he had to have an investor because, you know, it was too expensive to do it any other way. But he had an investor who was a big wrestling fan. And you know what Rick Rubin, uh, he, what he wanted more than anything else, what he wanted to see in a character? What? You know this? I don't he think... He wanted a zombie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a so zombie? We had a zombie. <laughs> That is. But you can find it somewhere, and I forgot. I forgot his name. He had a name, and he'd go in the ring. But that's one of the things he wanted. Oh, that's what Jim said. But we had they had rock and roll, and they had uh, the midnight, the revised midnight, and they had cornet, and they had. Uh, I don't think I think Landale was a shortly, very shortly, and uh, had dirty white boy, and had Chris Candido and Sonny. That's before they went to WWE, and he brought a lot of talent through there. So Smoky Mountain was a fun place to work. Yeah, and a lot of that stuff's on the WWE Network now, too, so it's it's pretty wild to go back and, and like you said, watch the matches and the quality that, that was produced. Well, he wanted me to do an in-ring segment to interview wrestlers, and he said, come up with a name, and I, I called it Down and Dirty with Dutch. So I, I guess I did that six months. And it was it was just an interview segment for wrestlers to come in the ring and talk about their particular match or another wrestler or whatever. That was fun too, very a lot, a lot of fun. So you're so you're telling me that the Miz and Christian have now all pretty much stole your your uh, stick, right? With their Miz TV, Miz and Christian when they had the Rated R Superstar and some other stuff, they pretty much stole your stick in the ring when you would interview people. Well, I don't know if they stole it or not. It was it's an old platform that wrestlers used to do. I probably stole it from somebody too. <laughs> so I enjoyed are, doing it because. But see, the thing about me doing that is they didn't direct me. They said go in there and do this interview. See, because when you had experienced players, experienced performers, you didn't have to write, and nothing was ever written down for me in Smoky Mountain. Everything I said just came off the top of my head, <clears throat> and if there was a if there was uh, something that Jimmy really wanted out there, he may tell me that, but that's all he'd tell me. Now everything is written down, and you know, on Raw, I've I've stood there in the gorilla position and watched the producer. It's either it's either Vance or Triple H talking to those announcers and telling them say this and say this and say this and say this. See, most of that what you hear in WWE is well produced. But none of it is very, very original from the from the announcers. In Smoky Mountain, everything I said was my idea. So if I said it, I'd, I'd, I'd own it. Man, it's it's such a it's so crazy to hear these stories. Dutch Mantel is on the phone with us right now. Uh, let, I want to talk about something that I guess is starting to really blow up in the wrestling world, 
And uh, it is Dark Side of the Ring, and you've uh, been a part of a couple episodes. Where did this all begin? Like, did somebody come to you? Was Cornette involved? I mean, how did it all go about? Well, the producer and, and the brainchild of this is a guy called Evan Husney, H-U-S-N-E-Y. And you can find him on Twitter, Evan, E-V-A-N, Husney. And uh, he, he worked for Vice. And he had this idea that he would like to tell these stories in reenactment style. And he had had this idea, I guess, a couple of years before. And I think he presented it to them twice. And they, like, kind of turned him down twice. But he never lost his desire to, to produce a show like this. So... Finally, he said, I'm going to try it one more time, even though they'd turned it down twice. According to him, it may be, this, may not, this may not even be true. This is what I understand that he told me. So when he started, the, they wanted to do an episode on the Bruiser Brody murder in Puerto Rico. And I was there. I was the first guy that Evan called. And actually, I asked him just a month ago. I said, hey. And he told me, he said, you were the first guy I called. And I was talking to him. And I said, well, why was I the first one? He said, because you were involved in the Boozer Brody uh, incident in Puerto Rico. You were a witness, and I just wanted to get your feelings on it. And then what, he, what, what we then developed is I put him in contact with Cornette. And I put him in contact with Bruce Pritchard, and they in turn put him in contact with, uh, what's the guy in Atlanta's name? Tony? Run. Er. Not Tony, but... Uh, Eric Bischoff. Mm. Hey, guys, listen, my memory is not very good. I've been hit on the head a couple hundred thousand times. <laughs> so I can't, I can't remember nothing. So they put him in contact with, with them, and then he started getting all these stories, and he had a bunch in his head anyway. And then it kind of – we did – we actually did the Boozer Brody one maybe a year and a half ago. And then we did the, they did the rest of them a year later, which is back in the – back in the fall, and then they came together, and then he presented it to them, and now you see what it's doing. It's really outperforming all expectations that Vice had for the show. But I told him, I said, listen, Evan, you're dealing with wrestling fans, and they're going to watch this. Wrestling fans will eat this up because I even like it. Right. You guys watch it and like it. Wrestling fans like to be told the story behind the story. And it's it's and crazy. There discre- are, are there some discrepancies in it? Yeah, I guess maybe. And but that's the story that we had, and so that's what we went with. And you know, it's crazy because it's like when I the first when I started scrolling through, I started watching the Bruiser Brody one, and I text Eli about it, and it's just like it's very well done. And it, of course, it's not just by you know random people that could have been there. They're getting the people that were actually involved in like hearing you tell the story of sitting there and you and Tony and getting bruised to the hospital and the whole situation. Like I got goosebumps the entire time watching that episode. Plus it was in Puerto Rico too. And I told you it always had a dangerous vibe to it because you got people you don't know and they're speaking a foreign language and, but, and it was, it was just different. But when, when that happened, and if you watch the show, it's on bias. On Wednesday nights at nine o'clock Eastern, eight o'clock here in Nashville, but it's 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 a good show. Uh, the first show did 
I think, 151,000 live viewers for that show. Jeez. You know, 150,000 for Vice is pretty good. Right. But when you add in the three-day viewing period and the YouTube, it was viewed 400,000 times. Jeez. Or more. And now every week it went up. The next week was 180,000 live viewers. The week after that was 214 live viewers. And that was the Bruiser Brody one was the third one, which had been on YouTube for three weeks. And that's that's kind of how I stumbled across it was on YouTube because I was just kind of scrolling through and I was like, I'm going to sit here and watch this. And then I was like hooked and I just kept going down the rabbit hole and watching everything that was available for me. Well, the first one was about, bro. Uh, first one was about, uh, what was the first one about? I think the first one was the Macho oh, Man one. Savage. Yeah. Savage. Good story. And But it was kind of a dark side to it because, you know, he died and she died. Right. And then this, and some of these have, <clears throat> some of these have happy endings and some of them it's just a, a life ending. Uh, and the second one was about the, the Montreal screw job. Which I which I found fascinating myself. I've heard that story so many times, but see, you guys as fans, <clears throat> you hear it uh, through a filter. Right. Inside the business, uh, the filter is removed, kinda, but it's still we're hearing the same thing, but, but just a little bit more. And I, I learned some things there I didn't know, and then the thing about Brody, I was there still. Still found out some things I didn't know, and then the the one I think that's playing uh, that played what was the one that played last week? The Von Ericks were last week. The I Von Ericks. That was fascinating because I'd heard that story and and I knew the Von Ericks, so I'm not talking about someone who was distant to me or foreign to me. I knew the Von Erich boys, and I knew how how they acted and how they behaved and. And the, I think the one is the Gino Hernandez one, which will play. It's the fifth in the series. Fascinating. So what? Man, I think that one airs tonight. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it so this is live today, right? <clears throat> this interview. Yeah, we'll we'll chop some stuff up. But... Okay, but this is fascinating because I learned things about Gino that I never knew before. And I knew Gino back in the 70s. <clears throat> he, I think he died in 86. I knew him probably 10 years earlier when he was just getting started. Because he started about 18. I think he died when he was 28. Man. He, was a, he was a wild little, he was a wild little bastard. <laughs> and, a good look, and, and, a, and a good-looking guy. Women loved him. Man. And when he went out there and he did his deal, you know. Because that's what actually Texas, you know, the Von Erichs were, you know, the they were good-looking guys, and uh, and Gino. So, and Texas one time was very, very hot. And I found out things about Gino Hernandez that even I didn't know. Yeah, that one we're really excited to check out. Um, I think you know his 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 career was cut short, obviously, and um, I mean he he accomplished a lot in the short time that he did wrestle. But just kind of hearing the backstory and stuff should be pretty cool. Well, we we talked about the uh, the June second event here in Nashville, um, and like I said, we'll plug all that. Um, what else are you working on that that the fans may check out? You got anything else in the in well, the works? I've, well, I've ri- I've written two books. I don't know if you've read them or not. 
The one is The World According to Dutch. And I wrote this about, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. Still a good book. Because once a story is told, I mean, the story doesn't get old. It just, it's there. It's always there. Right. And it's the stories of, uh, the second book is uh, Tales from a Dirt Road that I wrote. And these are stories that, that things that have happened to me are to someone that I was there present. And not a, it's about fights in the dressing room. It's about getting pulled over by the cops. It's fights in bars. It's things that happened during matches. And I mean, it's just road stories. And the thing about it is I don't use any bad language in it or out anybody or call anybody a drunkard or drug addict or anything else. It's just crazy, crazy stories that's happened. And then got the undertaker in there when we got pulled over and on I-65 South at gunpoint by the state police. That's a pretty good story. <laughs> and then Kane saving saving my butt in Puerto Rico from the crowd, literally kicking the crap out of me. If it hadn't been for Kane, I'd, I don't, I'd have been hurt a lot worse than what I was. I needed, after that night, I needed like 16 stitches Jeez. over my eye and below my eye because the guy kicked me. Uh, but it's just stories like that. And they're told, like, I may tell a story from 1985, then I might jump up to 2003. Man. So I, I tell a story that way. So you can, it's actually a great bathroom book. You can take it in there and put it down, read the chapter and you'll be done with it. The next chapter is totally different. And you can find these on, on Amazon or if you want, some people want autograph copies. So if you want an autograph copy, just email me at dirty Dutch Mantel with two L's at gmail.com. And I'll get right back to you. This uh, can I just go ahead and just say that it's such an honor to have you on the phone with us today. Well, you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm looking at Eli. Did. We're, we're kind of going back and forth, and I was like, "This is this is crazy." The fact that I am talking to a guy that I grew up watching, and my dad told me stories about, and now I'm on the phone with him. What did your dad say? <laughs> <laughs> he he would tell me about the matches you had, and he would just kind of go through of like the arenas and like matches that he was at where you were there, and just how like the atmosphere in the building was just ridiculous. Well, we used to go in these <clears throat> we used to go in these small towns, and small towns are no different today than they were then, except uh, now they have raw. But back then, they didn't have Raw. They had Memphis Wrestling. So when Memphis Wrestling, say it went to a little town, say Lexington, Kentucky, uh, Lexington, uh, Tennessee, let's just say, small town, maybe 8,000 people. We put 1,000 people in that gym, 1,000. It, it was unbelievable. Sometimes you couldn't even, and in summertime, it would be so hot, but the people would not leave. Everybody sweating, pouring sweat, but nobody left because they were having a good time. So when you look out to the little high school gym and you got a thousand people out there and they're all coming to enjoy it and see what you're doing, it's really an honor and it's really a tribute. And actually, I think the wrestlers enjoyed it as much as the fans because it was a pleasure to go out there and work in front of people who responded to what you were doing. And it wouldn't be just Lexington, Kentucky. It could be another little town, Humboldt, Tennessee, whatever. Or if you went to here, you went to Shelbyville, Tennessee. Sometimes the smaller towns drew more because they didn't get that much live entertainment. So when it, when wrestling came to town, it was like the carnival come to town. Hey, let's go to wrestling. And you take the kids. 
and all the kids show up. It was really a fun time. And I really had a lot of the fans would come up and talk to you. And every, every fan had a different story about something, something they liked something they didn't like something, whatever. But it was a, it, it was a good time. One time I was working, <clears throat> this is a story of my book. <clears throat> I'm working Pulaski, Tennessee. Now guys, what is Pulaski known for? Uh, the KKK. Absolutely. I'm standing out there in Pulaski, Tennessee, and I kind of knew this, but I didn't know this. And here's another side story. I was coming back from Birmingham one night, I-65 North, and I look over to the to my left. I swear there's a big cross burning in this field. What? And I went, what the? I mean, this is a true story. I didn't even know why. Why would a cross? <clears throat> why would a cross be burning? in a field that you could see from the interstate. Now, this is the days before Google. If I wanted to find out any of this stuff, I'd have to either ask someone or go to the library. But I did ask around, and they told me, oh, Pulaski, Tennessee is the home of the Q. Clark's Klan, and what they were probably having was a, a Klan meeting. I went, ooh. Wow. Anyway, going back to my original story, I don't. I tell you, I get off track. You know, I'm <laughs> But I'm standing there watching the match, and this guy come up to me. He's probably 28, 27, 28, with a suit on. And he said, how you doing, Dutch? I said, oh, fine, fine. He said, listen, I got something, huh? Can I talk to you after the matches? I said, well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> so the matches end, and Savage was there. I was wrestling Savage that night. This is a long time ago. And the, the gym was about sold out, not quite, but and it was like summertime. I went out to my car, and here this guy came. And he introduced himself, handed me a card, told me his name, and he told me he was the president of the local chapter of the KKK. Brother, when he said that, the hair on my arm stood up. And he wanted to know would I be interested in joining. What? Whoa. And I and I went, well, you know, I've got a lot going on and uh and I said, I'm just going to be honest with you right now. I said, hey, I don't have enough. I don't have time in my life for hate. So I got, I got to reject your offer and move on. He said, okay. The offer still stands. I said, okay. And he walked off. Brother, I got out. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And I was, I was riding home, and I looked over, and there was this car, and I threw it out the window. Man. That that was one thing that I've kind of always remembered. Oh my God, man! That hey, is... this is another story. This is another, you remember the Mary Winkler case in Selmer, Tennessee? Uh, yeah, vaguely. The woman who shot her husband in the back. Yeah. And she came, and I think she lived in McMinnville for a while. Because I got to follow in this case, so I, I I swear, guys, I went to Sel- Selmer, Tennessee to appear at this show <clears throat> and this hasn't been too long ago either I don't know when it happened but so I go to the concession stand and I'm just standing there and all the women knew me oh hi Dutch how you doing you want some coffee you want a coke you want a hot dog you want any this that and they were trying to give me all this stuff and I said no I'll take I'll take a coke they gave me a coke and we're just standing there chit chatting and I says hey what's going to happen to that Mary Winkler woman my God, you'd thought I threw cold water in those women. 
they had just all the, all the expression went out of their faces. They turned their back on me. They almost tried to pretend I didn't even say that because then one of them said, that man was mean to that woman. Oh, geez. Ooh. And they had the trial, and she wasn't convicted. She shot her husband twice in the back while he laid on the bed with a take a shotgun and took the kids and went to Florida, and they still didn't convict her. Jeez, man. So, so when I said that, I said, ooh. I don't know, guys. It just shows you sometimes. <laughs> right. And uh, let's, let's be uh, careful. Yeah, no that's kidding. Not even a re- that's not even a wrestling story. <laughs> that's just a story <clears throat> that happened to me around wrestling. Man. It's real events. And, you know, the story that you kind of just told, that's stuff that you'll be able to hear at one night only on Sunday, June 2nd at 7 p.m. at the Springwater Supper Club and Lounge, right? Yep, you can hear that. And it's, it's a night of humor and there's going to be a question and a Q&A session afterwards. And if you're a wrestling fan and you want to hear some old-time stories, I'll run the history of wrestling or just be around it. I mean, I could do this interview all day long. We could talk We could talk for a couple more hours of the crazy stuff that's <laughs> happened to me. Man. <laughs> the, times I, I went, the times I went to India, the times I went to South Africa, the times I went to Europe, I went to Japan, Mexico, Canada. And in what other business do you do that? You just don't do that. Right. And, you know, I think... I mean, you guys don't You guys don't go to South Africa to do a radio show. No, we... The wrestlers do. We don't... I think the closer we go to our radio shows when we go to, like, certain events and whatnot. But, uh, so, <laughs> once it gets closer, you, you know, we sit here and talk about... You could talk about this for hours. Once it gets closer to the event, we want you, uh, if you're available, to come in the studio. We'll have you in here, and we'll talk more wrestling, and we'll talk more about the One Night Only with Dutch. Love it, guys. Just let me know. Thank you so much, Dutch, for taking the time out and talking with us today. Thank you, guys. I, I literally have no words for what just happened on the phone just now. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty weird because he said he could have gone for a couple more hours. I could have just sat here and just let him tell more stories. It's and just unbelievable. That Yeah, just sitting here listening to that and then getting off the phone with him and then me and him texting back and forth. And I guarantee you, you do not want to miss the one night with Dutch Mantel that's happening on June 2nd. Uh, you can grab all your tickets. We'll put an info. Uh, we'll put some links in our uh, podcast information, everything. You can get it there. But, uh, yeah, so we've got some more guests in store. Um, we will be talking on the phone with the guy who has had a great career in wrestling, and he is now over at Impact Wrestling, Josh Matthews. We will talk to him next week on the show, and we'll kind of address the uh, the elephant in the room that everybody wants to talk about, Impact Wrestling. What's the future hold? We'll talk to him about that. So, uh yeah, make sure that you follow us on Instagram, Battleground Podcast. You can check out Eli's podcast, which is Music City Horror. Boom. Go check it out. And uh, until next week, we'll see you later. You going to say bye, Eli? <laughs> see you. <ya. laughs>